This episode is brought to you by ShippingEasy.com. They're an online shipping software that pulls orders from your cart, prints shipping labels, and notifies your customers when the order is shipped. So if you're looking for something to kind of automate all your orders, either from Amazon, Etsy, your own store, other marketplaces, uh, ShippingEasy is a great solution to use. It's the solution that actually Travis uses for his store, BeatAnswer.com, and they're giving all listeners of the Build My Online Store podcast a free 90-day trial. So check them out at ShippingEasy.com build. That's ShippingEasy.com build. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. I'm Terry Lynn here. I'm with Gulnaz from Easy Size. I'm not going to try to pronounce your last name because I'm going to screw it up. So, <laughs> welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, before we get started, uh, you know, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Gulnaz. Uh, my last name is really tricky, that's true. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons is because I'm originally from Russia, from Moscow, and uh, I moved to Copenhagen two years, two and a half years actually ago. Um, and have been living here since. So uh, what I work on now is um, a company called EasySize. I started EasySize uh, in uh, 2013, in autumn 2013. And uh, basically the main goal I had by that time is to solve so-called the sizing and the fitting issue. Um, just to give a little bit of background why I started that, I was always a big fan of online shopping. And to be honest, I hate buying clothes in, in regular stores. So uh, I would always have the same issue. I'll go online, I will find something that I like, and after that I will have this hassle with picking the right size. So um, I started wondering why there are no uh, tools which will be able to help me with that. Something simple and something uh, that won't consume a lot of my time. Uh, after not finding anything reasonable, I decided to build it by my own. And as I had a background uh, in data analysis before, I've decided to how I like to call it, crack into fashion using data. So what is ESIS is today is a data-driven service where we analyze online shops' orders and returns records. And based on that, we uh, try to really understand customers' shopping behavior and show the size which they need to buy in a certain product. There was a presentation where you called this the girlfriend problem, right? Like, hey, I'm gonna buy you a dress, yeah. but if I buy you one that's too big, what, you think I'm fat? And buy you one that's too something, wow, you think I'm this thin? And It, it actually was, an, it, that's that's a really good example because I was pitching at that point in, in front of um, 300 investors, and 99% of them, they were white guys, uh, you know, buying really, really premium brands, and usually having tailors and so on. So I had this uh, goal, how to uh, explain the product so they understand it and can relate to it. And after talking to them, I realized that a lot of these guys, they actually buy lots of stuff to their girlfriends and to their wives. So I've decided to, to explain it that way. And, and the thing is that it, the sizes, they differ not only between brands and between countries, but even uh, depending on the collection. So for example, fast fashion brands like H&M or Sarah's, they, they have 30, uh, 30 to 35 collections a year. And each one of them will, will go with a different size. So um, it, it really gets tricky when you really need to figure out your size, especially in brands you have never bought anything before. Yeah, so why is that different? Why, why does Zara and H&M have different standards? Is it just because it helps them internally when they design the stuff? or? Well, there are, yeah, there are various reasons. Um, some of them is because of the uh, um, actual intention they, you know, of the collection. So for example, if they want to use a certain fabric, which let's say silk, um, um, as a main fabric of the collection, then the sizing needs to be adjusted because a dress in a small size in silk and a dress in a small size in cotton, they will fit differently. Um, so, yeah, so that could be a reason. That could be clothes in cut. 
So depending on whether you want to make it a little bit slim feed or, you know, a little bit comfier, that the sizing will be different as well. And of course, just in general, um, the country they produce or uh, the country they produce for. Because of course, we as a customers, we enjoy buying medium sizes. Uh, you know, no one wants to buy like extra, extra large and so on. So that's the reason why fashion brands, they quite often adjust their sizing to make it more reasonable for their customers. That's the reason why in Italy, the older sizes, they're in general smaller. And in the U.S., they're in general bigger because no one would like to go and buy like extra, extra large clothes every day. And that's one thing I notice about different cultures too. Like if you're going to like, well, I guess let me ask you this. Is easy size, most of your users or your data, are they like women or is it pretty half-half? Yeah, data-wise, we have uh, 50-50. So female and male users, they're more or less equal. But what is interesting, uh, we've noticed that male users use our tool much more often. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure why they do that. It's something that we still need to figure out. But one of the theories we have in the team is because um, I think male users, they're in general uh, less sophisticated in terms of sizing. So they know less and they don't want to just to deal with that hassle. And also, I guess it's something to do with the self-confidence because I feel that, um, I mean, in terms of sizing, I feel that female users quite often think that they know everything, you know? So like I've bought dresses all my life. Why would I listen to a stupid tool to tell me what size it should be? And um, when the guys, they're more like, okay, I have no idea how the sizing works. I just need some help here. Yeah, well, I think that now maybe it's also a reason why um, specific services for male users, like for example, you know, like style subscription and style recommendation services, they are getting so popular now because it feels that guys, they really like this education and knowledge of like, how to wear clothes and how it should fit you and so on. So they really need some, some advice and some help here. So if I sell a clothing store, do I sign up for these sites or does the person that buys it sign up for you? Yeah, so we integrate with shops and we request them to provide some information about their orders and returns. And after that, we are able to analyze it better and basically cover all the brands they have currently in the store and show the size and so on. And is there a certain number of products you need to have the right data set or um well that's the beauty about our platform is that we basically collect the data from each online shop integrated to our platform and it means that the more shops we have more brands we cover more categories we cover and more customers we have so for example yeah if you have like 10 brands uh on, in your store we will actually add 500 additional brands to that because we already have them in our platform and so on oh so instead of like Every brand with its own database of sizes, you guys are kind of centralizing everything. Yeah, basically, yes. Yeah. So we take that hassle uh, and uh, we map those brands like between each other through our database. Yeah. All right. So I understand uh, after you went to Copenhagen, uh, you joined a few startup competitions or you were pitching some investors. So how did you get to that phase? Yeah, well, first of all, after joining the, the accelerator, I actually spent some quite a time, I think, almost half a year if not more just developing the, the product and making a market research and so on so um, and uh, after that I've decided that it's probably time to start gathering a feedback so of course um, and, and that's probably some some sort of a um, thing in uh, in startup community that usually when you go to meet 
other startup founders and you'll say, okay, this is my idea. You'll pitch your idea and no one will ever say, okay, your idea is crap. You should not be working on that. You should not be wasting your time. Because usually people in general, they try to be nice and they'll say, yeah, sure, that, that sounds like a great thing. So I was looking for a feedback which will be more from maybe investors and uh, or maybe from just people in the industry. So um, that was the reason why I decided to join a couple of uh, startup competitions because I knew that uh, they will have investors, um, you know, as judges. And investors, they, they don't care. <laughs> like they see you once in their life and they just give you all the feedback, all the questions they want. So that was really helpful because I could really understand from investors' point of view um, what are the weaknesses and, and strengths in my company. Yeah, because like those are like the hard questions you want to get right away instead of waiting like you know one two years to get the data or even the feedback that you need from that from actual customers. Yeah, of course. And for example, one of the questions I will be always asked is um, um, team because I'm a solo founder and at that point I didn't really have like you know strong team behind me and it was obvious. So and it it uh, taught me how to really present my team so no one will have any doubts and any questions why I chose to work with these people. Yeah, there's there's the sentiment in the tech space, at least like the VC angel space, where it's like if you don't have a co-founder, something's wrong with you because you can't even sell someone else on your idea. Uh, yeah, I think it's also not only because you cannot like presumably sell it to anyone else and convince someone else to join you or, and your team, but mainly it's just a, a simple risk evaluation. So, and I do understand that uh, clearly, like, uh, if they invest in the solo founder and tomorrow something happens with that solo founder, I don't know, like, you know, a car accident or whatever, it's something bad, yeah. So that's it, basically, the company's gone and the investments are gone. And basically, I had, um, like, emotional answer and a practical answer. So the practical answer will be, well, first of all, I am looking for co-founders and I'm looking for people to join my core team. Secondly, I have already gathered some team with me already. And uh, so those people, maybe they don't have the title of a co-founder, but those are the people who work with me. So it means that I have the ability to, uh, you know, gather people together and form the team. And, and the third one is that I, from the beginning, reserved some certain amount of shares. Uh, and I said, look, those are the shares I have reserved for my shares. And I'm going to give it to all the good employees and, and future co-founders. So I actually have prepared everything um, for them. If uh, At the moment when I find the right person, that person will be able to join the team right away. And the emotional answer will be usually just, I will just, you know, try to show them how passionate and how dedicated I am, that I'm, I am actually taking this uh, company seriously. I'm ready to work and, and so on. So I think that was the combination of these emotional and practical approaches. Yeah, exactly. and, and it's reasonable too because then you have no counter. Well, you just haven't found the right person yet. It's yeah, of course, and it also helps uh, to decrease the risk in terms of uh, you know from from the investor's point of view because they know yes, okay, I'm a solo founder, but I actually have other employees in the team investing shares and uh, you know being a part of the team and of the company. So even if something happens with me, then it doesn't mean that the company uh, you know will be will be done here. All right, so going back to easy size a little bit, so. You know, you developed the first prototype. Uh, what did your feedback look like when you started approaching some brands? Uh, uh, well, I guess uh, what, what I did actually first, uh, it was a little bit different product. It was uh, a mobile app where you could um, take two photos of yourself and using an image recognition technology, we will uh, understand and, and uh, find out your body measurements. And after that, translate it using size guides into some sizes in brands. 
So um, what was interesting with that, that we, we saw that a lot of people were downloading it, but the engagement rate was really low, meaning that pain was there, but people, that wasn't the right way to, you know, to solve that issue. So when we started uh, working on the uh, prototype of the current idea, so data-driven service, I actually spent a lot of time talking to uh, shops, even before I had the first prototype ever. I just made some sketches and I actually uh, spent some time interviewing shops and trying to understand what the issues are and whether they're willing to share the data or not and so on. And I found out a lot of interesting things. Like, for instance, that shops were willing and are willing to share the data. The only thing they don't want to share is um, personal or payment information, which is luckily not something that we really need. Or, for example, yeah, pricing. It's something that I'm still testing uh, with the team, and we are trying to figure out what the right price should be for retailers. But it's really interesting to really talk to them and understand their, their opinion on things and so on. How long did it take you to figure out that the app wasn't, the right way to go about this? Uh, well, I guess it was alive for uh, half a year or so. So we had already some data collected and it was just obvious. Like we would see that engagement rate was extremely low, which should not be a case in any apps. And after that, we tried to launch a few features. It didn't help. And we tried to do some advertising, paid, paid downloads and so on. It didn't help either. And that's it. It was, it was obvious and like, okay, that's clearly not working. What can be done here? Yeah, I feel like the app space is really hard now because it's like, how many apps do people have on their phone? Like, you look at like any person in a coffee shop. Yeah, like definitely. Four, four pages of that, whether it's, you know, Clash of Clans, which I play a lot, uh, like Poker, Candy Crush, or whatever, like all these chat apps, dating apps, whatever. It's just, it's just such a crowded space now. To kind of break through. Yeah, uh, I even I, I think I saw it a couple of days ago a, a chart, a pie chart showing how many uh, you know how how much developers on average uh, earn, and the, the number was ridiculously low. I think on App Store it was around like two thousand dollars a year, something like that. And of course, the majority of the market is controlled by just a few players. Yeah. All right, so let's go back to kind of talking to stores a little bit. So you're talking to stores about. You know, their data, their sizes, what they didn't want to share. What did you do with this after that? Yeah, well, I've tried to collect that information and, and really uh, understand what could be done there and how we can really approach this issue. So first of all, it was clear that we should talk to online shops and uh, not online shoppers. So meaning that our product should be B2B product. Because online shoppers are not the ones who want to pay. And of course, we cannot build a product and business based on, on a charity and not charging anyone. So that was the first thing. After that, I actually I was pretty lucky because at that point, a friend of mine was working in, um, in one fashion brand. So they actually they had three fashion brands, international brands. I won't be saying the name because I, I think it might get him into trouble. <laughs> but uh, there were three fashion sports brands. And uh, I remember the night when I actually had this first initial idea saying that, okay, what if we try to analyze orders data and returns data? I texted him saying like, hey, this is the idea. Do you guys have this kind of data? And he said, yeah, let me check it quickly. So he actually checked it and he sent me the first data. So that was the first other data set I've gotten for, uh, for easy size to test the first prototypes and so on. And uh, when he sent it to me, it was clear what online shops have and what they don't have and what sort of data they usually store and in what format and so on. So um, that was pretty lucky with him. 
And uh, basically, after that, the second thing what we've tested is that, um, like, the basic uh, rule in EasySize is that our algorithm analyzes style preferences and not body measurements or close measurements. Meaning that um, our approach is that saying that, you know, like, if you have some certain style preferences, like you like oversized sweaters or slim-fitting shirts and so on, that behavior will be repeating uh, over like among different brands and so on. And that's the reason why when we predict the size, we map you with other users who are similar to you. So um, we decided to make a small experiment saying that will uh, regular users, online shoppers, be willing to share that data with us or should we find a different way? So we went for a weekend to a um, city close by called Malmo. And we just went on the streets and, and uh, started approaching random people saying, hey, um, we want to take a photo uh, with you and ask you about the brands you're wearing. And the legend was that, okay, I have a fashion blog and uh, I think that you look amazing and I want to take a photo of you and after that post and add the names of the brands. So uh, what was interesting that people were actually okay with us taking photos of them, but they did not want, and asking about brands, but they didn't want to share the sizing. So, and that made it clear that sizes and in general body measurements and so on, it's something really intimate for customers, and that's not something that they want to share. So, yeah, overall, by analyzing all those different things and trying this small, you know, prototypes and so on, it was clear that, okay, first, it has to be a B2B product. Secondly, we have to get that sort of data with those certain requirements. And thirdly, it has to be some algorithm will be uh, mapping customers with each other uh, based on their uh, simil on the similarities of their shopping behavior. Yeah, I think you look at it from like a B2B versus B2C, Value function, like I guess one, there's an acquisition center. Like if you acquire B2C customers, it's gonna be infinitely more expensive, more time consuming and kind of laborious than to just kind of identify all the brands you have already essentially in your database mm -hmm. too. And, and also, if, I guess if you look at the problem for like a B2C person, like if I buy the wrong size, you know, it sucks. Maybe I live, maybe I just keep wearing it. Maybe I return it. Whereas like a B2B player that sells, you know, like thousands of inventory every day, you know, if, you know, 5% gets returned all the time, you know, for my staffing costs to process that, for my warehousing to return the shipping, you know, to re unfulfill all the stuff, to put it back in inventory, like this huge cost that's much more easier to, I think, identify than for like a B2C person. That's yeah, definitely. And actually you said 5%, but in Europe, in fact, it's around 35%. 35? Of all the yeah, of all the clothes they're getting returned. So every 10 shirts I sell, like four get returned. Yeah, basically. And there are countries like, for example, in Germany, that number is even higher. Uh, it's around 45 to 50%. So basically every like half of the stuff you're selling, it's getting returned. And uh, that leads to lots of uh, returns costs for, for online shops. And it's not only, yeah. yeah is that... Is that just a cultural thing or is it the data that there's like the sizing is wrong or how's why is it that high? Well, I think first of all, uh, it's uh, partially because of the sizing. Like if we take Europe in each European country, there is a different sizing system. Uh, and of course, uh, sometimes they are similar, like sometimes French and the Italian, uh, the German one, they will be the same. But for example, Italian and German, they're absolutely different and UK and, and so on. They're really different. 
And uh, secondly, um, I think it was for a long time uh, a sort of like a marketing way for some big retailers uh, to really push themselves to the market. Like, for example, when Zalando, a leader of the German market and probably one of the biggest retailers in the world, they just launched the, the uh, product. They decided to use uh, this approach saying, okay, you can buy um, anything you want and return it for free. So, of course, other shops, they started following this approach uh, in order to compete with them. And that's the reason why now it's widely spread that in, regardless of what the reason is, you can return it for free. So, so, so you could basically tell a retailer, hey, you know, we can fix maybe out of 30 percent, you know, 10 percent of the people, whatever, had the wrong size. We can reduce that by half. And then you say your warehouse costs by X your staffing cost by Y and, you know, other costs by Z, then it's like... No yeah, way. of course. That's that's what we usually do. And uh, we try to really educate retailers and show them how often um, things are getting returned because of the wrong size and uh, how a small tweak, like easy size, just a small assistance in the size prediction can really significantly decrease their returns. So is easy size something that happens in checkout or where does it happen in, the, like, the checkout cycle? Yeah, well, for now, it's uh, something that we show on the product page. So at the moment when you are browsing, we uh, um, show you a small button saying, uh, like, what, hey, do you need any help with the size? Of course, the, the phrasing of the button will be different. In some cases, it will be, what's my size or don't know my size and so on. So, and when a customer clicks there, then uh, we ask them to add a size of something that they already have. So, for instance, if you want to buy a T-shirt at Calvin Klein, we will ask you to add a size of any other T-shirts you have. And you can say, well, okay, I have a T-shirt at Ralph Lauren in a size medium. So that's enough for us to make the size prediction and show you the size for that specific uh, uh, T-shirt at Calvin Klein you're thinking about buying. But once you use the easy size, we save that information. And basically, if you go to browse next time, we will already know your size. And you don't need to go through this process one more time. You just open the page and you already see the recommended size right away. So do they need to sign up for an account or is it just done through like cookies or? Yeah, well, it's done through cookies. And also it's done if you have made some purchases in the store before. So we are able to really recognize you based on your ID and show that. So like as a consumer, I probably have no idea easy size is your company when I check. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually something that we're completely okay with. Yeah, because your customers, the end retailer that doesn't want to have that many returns and whatever they can do to reduce that would be awesome. And we really want to build this trust uh, worthy relationship with uh, retailers saying that, hey, listen, we don't need to know who your customers are. We don't care what the email addresses are and their names and so on. Uh, I understand you bootstrapped this for a year before you started raising money. Is that correct? Yeah, so I've been bootstrapping for almost a year, actually a little bit even over the end than a year. Well, I think it's really important, like, first of all, to understand your vertical, because there are some products which you can't possibly build uh, by just bootstrapping, like, for example, hardware and so on. So it's really uh, money consuming. So you have to have some capital for that. And secondly, it's really important to understand the stage you are at. Like, I think the reason uh, for me to not raising money sooner, it was because I'm a solo founder and I felt this responsibility um, for actually spending investors' money without being sure that that works. Um, so what I did, I first bootstrapped until I, I have proven that, okay, my product works. First of all, secondly, retailers like it. And thirdly, retailers uh, potentially are willing to pay for it. And so those were three main things, three main questions for me to answer yes, 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 before I 
I even started raising money. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that it's something that uh, everyone needs to do, but I think it helped me to actually be uh, a little bit more effective with investments and a little bit more effective with the money I raised. So, for instance, um, for uh, fundraising is a is a full time job. It's extremely hard and it, it it takes lots of time. So for me, it helped to actually put the priorities in the right order, saying like, okay, I'm fundraising, but still for me, the main uh, priority is my product. Did you find it easier to raise money once you had those three metrics filled, you know, with your customers, your own product and kind of the team? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think what was interesting for me to find out is that investors in general, they don't say no. So even if they're not interested, uh, quite often they'll be saying like, yeah, listen, it's an amazing idea, but until you have that and that, uh, we can't really consider, but please do like consider us interested once you have it. So it means no one says no, and you have this uh, feeling that, okay, my product is great, it will be so much easier for me to raise money. And after that, you, instead of working on product metrics and things that actually matter to your company success, you start working on things that matter to investors without really realizing that lots of them, they just don't say no to anyone. They just, they are nice people. They want to say yes to all the startups. Well, I think there's also the FOMO where they don't want to be a dickhead in case you're the next Uber, Facebook. Yeah, of course. Because if you think about it, like when Uber first came out, or like everybody, oh, I have like air mattresses. I'm going to go to people's houses and make them join my, you know, app to share their place. It just sounds completely crazy, right? Or like, oh, I have a app on my phone that's going to get a car. It doesn't make any sense. Right? <laughs> and, and if you're an investor that says, oh, you're stupid for that, then you're never going to get in like a series A, B, C or later, and then you're screwed. You know, you missed your unicorn, right? Yeah, exactly. And I found that, that it's not only, you know, misleading sometimes, but also it's extremely time consuming because you spend lots of time preparing those like investment decks and having meetings and calls and so on. So instead of deciding to say, okay, I'm going to work really on the uh, on the important metrics, and once I reach them, then I will start raising money. So until I had the proven product and the proven some of the product metrics and so on, I even didn't really start actively raising money. And I think what was helpful for me to actually, in this case, it's uh, uh, ironically enough to be a solo founder because uh, as soon as I, you know, a lot of people say raising investments, it's like a marriage. You have to be sure that you can work with these people. So for me, it was a little bit easier. Uh, from the first meeting, I will immediately get the impression whether I want to work with this person or not. And if I can't see myself working, there is no one else I can ask. And then for me, it will be, okay, then probably it's not the right investor for me. Yeah, well, and if you're bootstrapped, would you have some validation from your customers? You can kind of be more choosy with who you work with. Too, right? You're not kind of in a scarcity mindset where I always need to raise money just to get to the next Yeah, level. yeah. And like someone can take it away from you. Yeah, definitely. And um, it, I think in, in a way, it's probably really bad that I'm actually being that honest now during the interview about investors. <laughs> so I, I, don't think any, I don't think any VCs will like listen to this. Yeah, yeah, because it might hit me back. But I think what is uh, really important is to not give VCs the leverage and even to angel investors the leverage saying, uh, first, I'm not sure about what I'm doing or I don't have money left and so on. Because then they, of course, um, they have this leverage to push you on, on the valuation and uh, all the other yeah, things and so on. Have, have you finished a round recently? Or? Yeah, well, we actually raised our investments in, uh, in January this year. Uh, we've got angel investors on board. And uh, we just recently got one more additional investor uh, to the uh, to the board. 
So uh, we've got investments from 500 startups. And uh, yeah, we actually became their, one of their first uh, investments in the Nordics um, and uh, outside of their acceleration program. So, gotcha. so was it hard for you to kind of choose the angels to pick from? Or did you like kind of take your time to make sure you found the right one? Or kind of what did that process look like? Because I don't have any experience there. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, well, first of all, I have I have sort of a system in my head <laughs> what I usually do uh, to be sure that this is the right person for me to get on board. Because from the beginning, I've decided that I don't want to just raise dumb money, money from people who won't be helping to the company. So uh, that's the reason why I've tried to understand the main expertise I need to have on board. So it was obviously like fashion, e-commerce, SaaS, data, and so on. And uh, after that, I tried to find all the investors um, in, in the area or in my network who could be potentially interested, who have invested in some similar companies in the space and so on. So after that, I reached out to them. And with all of the investors, I tried to meet at least once, if not more. Because for me, it was important that it's the right match, not only professionally, but also personally. And uh, during our meetings, I'll usually ask them questions, you know, just in general questions to understand whether they're how I like to call it, like decent human beings. Um, so they're nice people. And uh, I think what was really important for me is to be sure that those are the people who can motivate me and, and uh, you know, who can teach me a lot. So what does like your life now look like then now that you've raised uh, angel money? Like, do you have to update them like every month or what is that process look like? Uh, well, I actually have decided to update them every week. Um, again, it's probably because I'm a solo founder and for me it's really important to engage all the people on board and be sure that I'm not missing out on the opportunities from the and expertise uh, my angel investors have and also to share the responsibility. So I guess um, one of the thoughts I had when I started doing is that, okay, if something goes wrong, I can always say, hey, listen, guys, you had the, all the information on your hands. So it's not only my failure, but <laughs> it's all together. Um, so every week I send them an update uh, on Monday, and um, I usually tell them how the product is going and sales, a couple of metrics, and um, yeah, some some other things like if we have new team hires or if we are um, considering someone to invest in the company and so on. And in each of the emails, I'll usually include um, your help part, um, where I will specifically mention some of the angels and say, hey, I need you to help me with that and that, or I need you to introduce me to that person, like, could you do that and so on. And what is really amazing that angel investors, at least the ones I have on board, they're really, really helpful. So they will always try to help me with the things I ask them uh, about and, yeah, just add some more value to the company. And that's one thing I learned working at a bank. It's like when your clients are fund managers with, like, you know, billions of dollars in a fund, maybe 20, 30 billion, like, you always want to over-communicate with them because the last thing you want them to do is chasing you for information. Like, if they're chasing you for an update, like, you've already lost yeah, so you're better off saying, "Hey, you know, here's what I'm up to." Even if you have nothing up to, you just say, "Hey, you know, I just want to check in, let you know nothing's really new. Things are moving a little slow, but at least they know that, you know, you're checking in. You're not just kind of being silent." Because I think a lot of people take the easy route where they just kind of hide, but mm -hmm. then they end up chasing harder, and they're like, "Well, what are you doing? Like, you have my money, or you're my, you know, I'm your client. Like, why are you doing this to me?" And kind of just, it, it's very counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of sense, like, to just over communicate rather than to like, you know, only tell them when you have news. Because some people will think, well, I don't have any updates, and I don't need to tell them anything. But they don't always see that, you know, as 
an investor. Yeah, of course. To. And I think that's that's actually that takes some sort of courage for you as a founder to write to your angel investors and say, hey, things are not going good or here we have problems. And that's uh, what a lot of founders are afraid of. Um, but I think it's really important and it's really healthy. Yeah, and especially like client problems earlier, like the earlier you can communicate with them to it, if it ever does come up, it's it's easier to diffuse, right? Rather than waiting for it to explode, you have, you don't know what to do. Then you go to your investor or client, like, oh my God, things are going so bad now. What should I do? Whereas if you told them like, you know, two months ago, hey, this thing's a little hard for us. What do you what do you think we should do? You know, we're trying this, nothing's working. All right, finally, we really need some help. Then you can be like, hey, you know, the last two, three months, we've been trying this, it's not working. You know, what do you think we should do? Rather than just doing it kitchen sink and having them blow up in your face too. Yeah. No, totally, totally. I think it's a really valid point. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool, cool. So I guess let's wrap things up a little bit. So I guess one question here, kind of inter- interesting to you, is that what keeps you up at night when it comes to running easy size? Um, I think it's just, uh, it's the first time in my life when I'm so passionate about something. Um, so I can, I, uh, I can and I think about the company all the time. I usually I have dreams about the company, about like new metrics or some, you know, meetings and so on. So... Yeah, I'm, I just really believe in what we do, and uh, I feel uh, responsible for all the people in my team and the people who believed in me personally, who invested their money and who invested their time. And that's also something that you know keeps me moving and keeps me uh, working on it. But of course, in general, after spending like almost two years working in fashion e-commerce, I realized how broken that uh, industry is. And uh, that now that might sound a little bit cliche if I say I want to make a world a better place, but uh, I really want to uh, improve fashion e-commerce and make it a little bit more accessible by customers and a little bit smarter for online shops. So uh, that sort of became my motto in general for, for the company. Have you thought about the next steps? Like once, say, you know, you've got this size problem solved for almost every retail in the world, like what's the next step? Because I guess you have this huge data set that you could build something else off it, right? Have you thought that far ahead or is it kind of just hypothetical? No, no, we actually, we are already building uh, two other products, like not products, but more kind of features in the current setup. So one of them, it's a really advanced analytics dashboard. So some of our customers are already testing it. And what is good about that, that we are really able to show some data about your customers, uh, which you have no idea you are able to collect or to have. For example, we can show you the brands and the categories where customers struggle the most with sizing, or we can show you the brands your customers have, and not necessarily the brands you sell in your store and so on. Um, in future, we want to add a couple of new metrics. So online shops or fashion brands, they will be able to have a better and more scientifically predicted forecast for, for example, new collections or for new purchases. So what we could do, we can say, uh, hey, uh, instead of buying five uh, dresses in a size small, five dresses in a size medium, you should rather buy one in a size small and six in a size medium because that's what your customers wear and so forth. So that's the first product. And the other one, it's something that we plan to launch um, in uh, next year, in uh, spring. It's going to be, a, uh, we call it internally, returns risk evaluation tool. Uh, and something that probably you with your uh, banking and finance background could really, really relate to. So what we want to do is to estimate um, how risky this customer and how, what the probabilities for this customer to return something. So it's something similar that in banks uh, usually uh, is done by estimation and valuation of your credit score. 
and here we will know your return score. Uh, yeah, so it's basically like risk management for fashion e-commerce essentially. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Because we are able to find the same custom across different shops and really use the data in different stores. And uh, one shop is usually limited to the data in this specific store. So based on that, we really can map and understand our overall behavior of a customer. And if we think that this customer is a shady one or the one who will be returning regardless of what this person is buying and so on, we will just show that information to shops. Yeah. So basically, you're moving upstream into their whole production chain because you have the data that can go to the next level too. And maybe even go down to the supply chain eventually once you figure out you know, what orders are moving, what aren't, what's being returned a lot, is even worth putting more into this, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we really want to make it a little bit smarter and uh, help online shops to use the data they already have. Gotcha, cool, cool. All right, so I guess uh, kind of wrapping up a little bit, so what's kind of the biggest challenges you see kind of as a woman in the tech space? Because I know you're kind of raising money in that space and pretty much it's like 90%, you know, all guys kind of in that space too. Any any challenges you've seen kind of, you know, as a young woman? Well, uh, there are obviously some challenges of being a female uh, entrepreneur and startup founder in, in tech currently. Um, some of them is uh, related to fundraising because usually investors like investing in uh, people who are similar to them, meaning the white guys. Uh, <laughs> but I always try to think about things like that um, in a positive way. So for, for me, for example, if I feel that an investor is biased and uh, being a little bit sexist in a way, then I will just say, okay, that's probably not the investor I want to work with. And for me, it, it became this uh, sort of factor to uh, understand and evaluate the investors as well. One, one of the things that I really feel is, of course, lack of role models. Quite often it feels that all guys club only. Uh, because there are not really that many uh, female founders in the spotlight. And I think that's something to do with uh, maybe some psychological things. I've heard this theory saying that in general, female founders, they're a little bit more humble. Um, but I believe that it's also uh, partially an issue uh, with media, because media likes to, you know, showcase um, in general, the startups who are there and uh, who like to talk about them and so on. So I feel that there is uh, definitely an issue with that. I'm actually uh, now a part of this um, organization, this network uh, called Women in Tech in Copenhagen. And we really try to understand what are the reasons why female founders, um, like women in general, they don't want to start their businesses. And lack of role models was the number one reason. Because a lot of women, they felt that, okay, if none of the girls could make it, I probably won't be making it, won't be able to make it too. And the second one, it was lack of practical knowledge. Because I feel that quite often girls, they are afraid of going to some, let's say, workshops, like how to build your startup or how to make an MVP. Because again, they will go there and there will be only guys in the audience. And they feel intimidated in a way. So I think those are the two main reasons why we don't have enough female founders. But it, it is definitely something that we as a tech community have to work on. Because I really believe that more diverse tech community is, the better it will be for everyone. And diversity, of course, it starts from gender, but also it's, a, you know, whether you're a foreigner or not, and, and your race and nationality and so on. And so where can we, people find out about EasySize if they want to learn more about it? Yeah, well, first of all, on our website, it's uh, easysize.me. 
And uh, yeah, we also have a Twitter, which is simply Easy Size. So we try to post our news there and so on. Um, yeah, and of course on the website we have also all the emails and, and phone numbers. So feel free to reach out to us by, by email or phone. We're always happy to talk. Gotcha, cool. And uh, if you're an e-commerce store, do you integrate with most cards right now? Or how does that work? We have now our Magento plugin as the first platform. So uh, we plan to launch on a couple of other platforms as well. All right then. Well, thanks so much for the chat. I'll let you know when this goes live. And then uh, I guess we'll keep in touch. Yeah, thank you so much. And it was really nice talking to you.